heard the opening to a song called Penalty Box. Dave Schultz recorded Penalty Box after he rose to fame with the Philadelphia Flyers in the early to mid-1970s. His nickname was The Hammer because his job on the ice was to beat the holy crap out of opponents. Dave the Hammer Schultz was, in hockey terms, an enforcer. A more descriptive word is goon. Schultz spent a lot of time in the penalty box, hence the song. But Schultz was by no means the only goon on the Flyers. After Schultz, there was Moose DuPont and Bob Kelly, and they had a few other guys who would mix it up. In 1973-74, the Philadelphia Flyers became known as the Broad Street Bullies. Their nickname tells you what they're most remembered for. Intimidation, physicality, thuggishness. The 74 Flyers never met an opponent they didn't want to beat up. Their logo should have been a clenched fist. They also had a coach, a center, a left wing, and a goaltender who would make it to the Hall of Fame. But the 74 Flyers elevated goon hockey to a new level. The bullies filled seats and grabbed headlines. They paved the way for an unprecedented era of brawling in the NHL. Love them or hate them, goons and enforcers stamped the NHL with an identity distinct from all other sports. John Branch writes in the New York Times, there has been fighting in hockey for about as long as there have been pucks. Early games on frozen ponds and outdoor rinks were often scrum-like affairs with little passing. Without strong rules, scores were settled with swinging sticks and flying fists. The NHL, formed in 1917, considered a ban on fighting. It ultimately mandated that fighters be assessed a five-minute penalty. That interpretation of justice still stands. It has never been much of a deterrent. Fighting is a big part of the story of the 73-74 Philadelphia Flyers. The Broad Street Bullies fought a lot, and they won a lot. Next up on that championship season. Welcome that championship season, a podcast about famous and or infamous champions and their moment in history. Championships are the stuff of myth, fable, and legend. Every champion has a story, and every season is a story that lives on in memory or in frame. That championship season will take you back to some of the great athletes, teams, and competitors 
bring alive their words and deeds, triumphs and blunders. So pull up your ears for a seat close to the action. And please join me, Steve Morantz, for that championship season. In 1967, the NHL added six expansion teams to the original six. The Philadelphia Flyers were among the six expansion teams. The expansion draft brought the Flyers three durable players, Joe Watson, Gary Dornhofer, and Ed Van Imp. But overall, the Flyers were small and nonviolent, and in a 1969 playoff series with St. Louis, they were manhandled. Owner Ed Snyder vowed to build a team that could not be pushed around. We realized that we would have to become tougher, stronger, and bigger, and we may not be able to win a lot of games as we're growing, but we certainly didn't have to get beat up. So we decided that no team would ever intimidate us ever again, and we conducted our drafts and we conducted our philosophy in that direction. General Manager Keith Allen was charged with the task of toughening the Flyers. The 1969 draft brought future Hall of Fame center Bobby Clark. Clark was a chippy and prolific scorer out of Flin Flon, Manitoba, who didn't get picked until the second round because teams were afraid of his diabetes. Three teams passed on him twice before the Flyers picked him. But Clark managed the disease and never let it stop him. He scored 15 goals as a rookie, and by his fourth season, 1972-73, he won the Hart Trophy as the league MVP. Jay Greenberg writes of Clark, The way Clark played suggested he was competing for his very life. Was it his type 1 diabetes? Did he want to get it in before it was too late? Clark always denied it. Clark loved the game too much to need additional reason for the ferocity with which he played it. The 69 draft also brought the aforementioned Dave Schultz and another tough guy, Don Seleski. Pugilistic Bob Kelly came in the 1970 draft along with center Bill Clement. Defenseman Barry Ashby came in a 1970 trade with Pittsburgh. Sharpshooter Rick McLeish came in a 1971 trade with Boston. Wingers Ross Lonsberry and Bill Flett came in a January 72 trade with L.A. Future Hall of Fame left wing Bill Barber came in the 1972 draft and scored 30 goals as a rookie. The 72 draft also brought two defensemen, Tom Bladen and Jimmy Watson, who was Joe Watson's younger brother. Another brawler, Andre Moose DuPont, came in a trade with St. Louis in December 1972. Center Orest Kindrachuk was undrafted and signed as a free agent in 1972. The final piece was future Hall of Fame goalie Bernie Perrant. The Flyers had gotten Perrant in the expansion draft and traded him to Toronto in 1971. He spent two seasons with the Maple Leafs and one in the WHA and then was traded back to the Flyers before the 73-74 season. 
Those players were the nucleus of the Broad Street Bullies. Their nickname emerged in the 1972-73 season. On November 9, 1972, Dave Schultz duked it out with Keith Magnuson of the Chicago Blackhawks, at the time considered one of the toughest brawlers in the NHL. Uh-oh, here we go. Schultz and Magnuson are into it. Throwing the fists. And each has gotten in quite a few rights here. As they broke out, they lined up against each other. And now, others are pairing off as Schultz is raining right hands on the Magnuson and Keith trying to retaliate and doing so. And Schultz has gotten a few good shots in on Keith Magnuson, who comes back with a few of his own. Schultz scored a lopsided decision over Magnuson. His victory signified a changing of the guard. The Flyers were as tough as any team in the league. Early in January 1973, two months after Schultz beat up Magnuson, the Flyers were in Atlanta. On the first shift, Bill Barber knocked an opponent over the boards. Moose DuPont logged three roughing penalties. The Flyers finished with 43 penalty minutes to 17 for Atlanta. When it was over and the Flyers won 3-1, Gary Dornhofer gave referee Wally Harris the choke sign. The beat reporter who covered the game for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin was Jack Chevalier. For his game story, Chevalier wrote, The image of the fighting Flyers is spreading gradually around the NHL and people are dreaming up wild nicknames. They're the Mean Machine, the Bullies of Broad Street, and Freddy's Philistines. Living up to their reputation, the Flyers learned last night that winning on the road can be easy and profitable fun. They swaggered into the Omni, ordered the Atlanta Flames up against the wall, and fleeced them for a 3-1 to win. The copy editor who handled Chevalier's story was Pete Caffone. It was Caffone who wrote the headline, Broad Street Bullies Muscle Atlanta. The Broad Street Bullies. It had a ring to it, wrote another hockey reporter, Jay Greenberg. Midway through their sixth season, the Flyers had a personality. Love is like a nice hockey game. Sometimes it can be rough. Girl, you got me so all aflame. I never, never get enough. Got me charging and cooking, holding and hooking, and then you blow the whistle on me. When you wanna let me go free, don't you know how slow go the penalty clause with their tickety tocks? The 2010 HBO documentary argued that the bullies had perfect synergy. The skill players needed the protection of the fighters, who in turn would have had no value without the skill players to score goals and stop the other guys. Good hockey teams have been built for years on that blend of toughness and skill. The unique part with the Flyers is that the fighters became the team identity. The Bullies had personality, and they had a brilliant, enigmatic coach, Fred Shiro. Shiro was an innovator who preached patience and repetition. He was the first to hire a full-time assistant coach, 
and he popularized the morning skate and film study. Shiro claimed to be a disciple of the Russian coaching master, Anatoly Tarasov, although his methods did not always reflect Tarasov. He drilled the flyers on skating in straight lines, dumping the puck, and not taking unnecessary chances. Jay Greenberg wrote that Shiro philosophized about life and delighted in discussing hockey theory. Yet, Shiro was a loner who sat by himself in coffee shops and bars and often would not acknowledge players when they passed him on streets and hotel corridors. They nicknamed him the Fog because he would materialize in rooms or hallways and then just as quickly disappear. Montreal coach Scotty Bowman said of Shiro, Sometimes I don't think he knows Wednesday from Thursday, and sometimes I think he's a genius who's got us all fooled. Greenberg wrote that Shiro learned to embellish the fog persona because it gave him an excuse to avoid confrontations, questions, and people. As a coach, however, Shiro made sure his team bonded together. On the road, he would gather the flyers in his room at mid-evening for beers. The real purpose of the meetings was to disrupt bar hopping and keep consumption at modest levels. It was Shiro who insisted that Dave Schultz gave the flyers courage on the road. Schultz, wrote Greenberg, by no means invented the role of enforcer. But no one has ever raised that role to such a grandiose level. His arms windmilled not only at competitors' faces, but also in continuous exasperation with the referees. Hair pulling and headbutting were part of Schultz's repertoire. He grew up in Rosetown, Saskatchewan, and as a kid never had a playground fight. He found his punching power in junior hockey at Swift Current and Sorrell. In 1969, in his first game in the Eastern Hockey League with Roanoke Valley, Schultz got his first taste of blood. He destroyed a player named Dennis Romaneski. As Greenberg wrote, an appetite for blood wetted, he fought his way up the ladder, arriving at the right time and to the bench of the right coach to become a phenomenon in Philadelphia. But girl, you blow my mind. Every little once in a while, you gotta leave the rules behind. You got me bumping and shoving, hungry for loving, and then you call an outside on me. Lock the door and then hide the key. Don't you know how slow go the penalty clocks with the tickety tug? Flyers led the league in 73-74 with 110 fights. Next were the New York Islanders with 65. Schultz led the league with 37 fights, well ahead of Gary Howitt's 30. Kendrachuk, Kelly, DuPont, and Seleski placed in the top 20 for fights. The Flyers established a league record of 1,742 penalty minutes in 1973-74. Said Shiro, I used to have a club in the minors they called the Magnificent Malcontents 
and we won the championship easy. 18 choir boys never won the Stanley Cup, and they never will. Traditionalists were offended by the Flyers' style of intimidation. Said Terry Harper of the Canadiens, The NHL did that goofy thing of letting that stupid Philadelphia team play. They wanted to make expansion work, and they kind of turned a blind eye. Whatever Philadelphia wanted to do, they could do. Said Kurt Walker of the Maple Leafs, Guys didn't like going into Philly. I didn't give a shit, but there were a lot of guys on my team who were throwing up before the game. They were nervous. It was no place for a nervous person. Visiting players would claim to be under the weather before games in Philadelphia. Their affliction was known as the Philly flu. Retired referee Bruce Hood said in his memoir, Fred Shiro's system was to create as much havoc as possible. He knew his team would be penalized for many, but not all, infractions. They had good goaltending and good penalty killing, so they did almost anything they wanted. And they used their intimidating tactics before and especially after the whistle. Once one flyer got involved in an altercation, the others weren't far behind to lend a hand. The 73-74 season opened at the Spectrum with a surprise. Kate Smith, the famous contralto, was there to sing her trademark, God Bless America. The Flyers had played it occasionally since 1969 to excite their fans and usually won when it was played. But this was Smith's first live performance of God Bless America before a game. Flyers responded with a 2-0 shutout of the Maple Leafs. After the game, Kate Smith told reporters, The cheers went right through me. I've played before larger crowds, but I've never had a bigger ovation. Bernie Perrant shut out the Islanders 6-0 in the second game. Perrant recorded four shutouts in the first ten games as the Flyers opened a six-point lead on the Blackhawks. Through 17 games, the Flyers were unbeaten in the seven games they scored shorthanded goals. Thanks to Shiro's efficient system, Perrant was tested on no more than three to five good chances per game. Jay Greenberg writes, As the Flyers grew more confident, they also became more belligerent. Schultz would spend the afternoon visualizing a fight with the opposition's toughest player then goes straight for him the first opportunity. An increasingly rambunctious Clark would also wield his stick without fear of retaliation. That was mostly the case, except with California Seals rookie defenseman Barry Cummins, 
who bashed him over the head with his stick. The Flyers came off the bench to pummel Cummins. Bill Clement said, As much as we were loved at home, we were hated everywhere we went. So we began to feel like it was us against the world. We thought, if that's what the fans expect, then we'll give it to them. The Flyers set their sights on becoming the first expansion franchise to beat an established club for the West Division title. On December 12, they came back from a two-goal deficit to tie the Blackhawks at Chicago Stadium. Ten days later, relentless Flyer body checks and three third-period goals sent the Blackhawks to a 4-2 Spectrum defeat. After the Flyers won eight straight games in March, they led the division by seven points. They clinched the division at home against the Boston Bruins, a team they had not beaten in 27 games. Bill Flett stole the puck from Bobby Orr for the go-ahead goal. Schultz duked it out with Terry O'Reilly, and the Flyers won 5-3. Shiro told reporters, This is the best team I've ever seen in hockey for discipline and desire. They finished as only the sixth team in NHL history to win 50 games in the regular season. In the first round of the playoffs, they swept the Atlanta Flames in four games. In Game 3, Schultz challenged the Atlanta bench and proceeded to bloody the nose of Butch Deadmarsh. On the morning of Game 4 in Atlanta, Shiro had to be awakened in his hotel room at 11 a.m. He awoke to find himself with a bruised face, a broken right thumb, and a gash on his left arm. Shiro told assistant coach Mike Nikoluk he had no idea how he was injured, but suspected he had been in a bar fight. GM Keith Allen ordered Shiro to fly home before the game and put Nikoluk behind the bench for Game 4. In Game 4, the Flyers overcame a 3-0 deficit to send it into overtime. In overtime, the series-clinching goal was scored by none other than Schultz. Next up in the semifinals were the New York Rangers. In Game 1 at the Spectrum, Rick McLeish scored a pair of goals and Perrant blanked the Rangers for a 4-0 win. In Game 2, a shorthanded goal by Ross Lonsbury helped lift the Flyers to a 5-2 decision. Game 3 was in New York. As usual, the Flyers racked up a lot of penalties and the Rangers connected for three power play goals for a 5-3 victory. When Schultz cruised for trouble in the final minute, he was ejected. Game 4 was 90 seconds into overtime when a slap shot by Rangers defenseman Dale Rolfe caught Flyers defenseman Barry Ashby flush in the eye. As blood dripped onto the ice, Ashby was rushed to the hospital with an injury that would end his career. Rod Gilbert then scored for the Rangers to knot the series at two games apiece. Game 5 at the Spectrum went to the Flyers 4-1 on crucial goals by little-used Tom Bladen and Simone Nolet and a pair of goals by Rick McLeish. Again, Bernie Perrant was strong in net. The Rangers won Game 6 in New York 4-1 
to send it back to Philadelphia for Game 7. In the first period, Rangers defenseman Dale Rolfe shoved a flyer in front of Rangers goalie Ed Jockerman. Schultz went after Rolfe Rolf, with a vengeance. Schultz gave Rolf a brutal beating, after which the Rangers seemed deflated. Goals by McLeish and Kinderchuk and two by Gary Dornhofer propelled the Flyers to a 4-3 victory. Jay Greenberg wrote, the Flyers succeeded in becoming the first expansion team to beat one of the old guard in a playoff series, but took deep breaths rather than deep gulps to celebrate. Philadelphia had won by the closest of margins on sheer determination. Rangers Hall of Fame defenseman Brad Park was bitter. He told media, After the fifth game, I was so fed up with the bleep they were pulling, I wanted to give it right back. But I decided that if I had to maim somebody to win the Stanley Cup, then it wasn't worth it. Dornhofer looked ahead to the finals against the Boston Bruins. Said Dornhofer, We're an awfully tired hockey club. I worry about our legs. But whatever we've got left, we'll give Boston all of it. The Bruins had eliminated Chicago five days earlier and had fresh legs. The Bruins featured the high-scoring line of Phil Esposito, Ken Hodge, and Wayne Cashman. They also featured the best player in hockey, Bobby Orr, a defenseman whose offensive brilliance revolutionized his position. Shiro's strategy for Orr was to wear him out. He told his players to dump the puck in Orr's direction and make him work. Greenberg wrote, The more tired Orr became, the more human he would seem. Game one in Boston, the Bruins jumped to a quick 2-0 lead, but the Flyers fought back to tie it early in the third period. In the final minute, the Flyers blew a chance when Bill Flett took a feed from Clark and missed an open net. With 22 seconds left, Orr shot through a crowd and threw Perrant's legs to give Boston a 3-2 win. Game two, the Bruins again jumped to a 2-0 lead in the first period, but again the Flyers fought back on a Clark goal in the second period. In the third period, with a minute left, Perrant came off the ice for the man advantage. Moose DuPont snapped a waist-high shot past goalie Gilles Gilbert to tie it. Twelve minutes into overtime, Schultz intercepted a clearing pass. He passed to Bill Flett, who passed to Clark crossing in front of the goal. Clark flipped a backhand that Gilbert blocked, but the rebound went to Clark's forehand, and he lifted the puck into the net for the 3-2 win. It was the Flyers' first win at Boston Garden in 19 games and six and a half years. Clark told reporters, I don't see how anybody could have doubts about us now. We know we can beat them. 
Game three at the Spectrum was a dominating 4-1 decision for the Flyers. Bobby Orr was worn out from incessant body checks and told reporters that the Flyers looked hungrier than the Bruins. Before Game 4, Shiro scribbled a motivational message on the blackboard. Win together now, and we will walk together forever. Game 4 at the Spectrum saw the Flyers take a 2-0 lead on goals by McLeish and Schultz. Phil Esposito and Andre Savard countered for the Bruins to tie the game at two after one period. With six minutes remaining in the third period, a brilliant wrist shot by Bill Barber put the Flyers ahead. Moose DuPont sealed the win with a forehander past Gilbert. The Flyers now led the Bruins three games to one. Back in Boston, the Bruins refused to die in front of their home crowd. Early on, Bobby Orr took the puck the length of the ice to set up a rebound goal by Greg Shepard. Bill Clement tied it in the second period, but then Orr slapped home a 50-footer off Perrant's glove. Ken Hodge made it 3-1, to one, at which point the Flyers lost control. Their 24 penalties set a record as Boston went on to a 5-1 victory. After the game, Bruins coach Bep Gwidelin said, they'll never beat us here in the seventh game, and that's true in big black letters. The Flyers went back to the spectrum for game six, knowing they had to avoid a Game 7 at Boston Garden. For Game 6, the Flyers wheeled out Kate Smith once again to sing God Bless America. Fans gave her a minute-long ovation. When Kate Smith finished, the Flyers were sky-high. Greenberg writes, When the puck dropped, they were ready to play the game of their lives. Fifteen minutes into the first period, the Flyers were in a four-on-three power play. From the top of the slot, DuPont drove a shot that ticked off McLeish's stick past goalie Gilles Gilbert. The Flyers had a 1-0 lead. They proceeded to kill six Boston power plays. Clark and McLeish dominated Esposito and Shepard on key faceoffs. Orr played 14 and a half minutes of the second period under constant bumping by Flyer forecheckers. On the Boston power play, Orr showed signs of arm weariness as he missed the net. Bernie Perrant was flawless in goal. In the third period, he dove at full extension to glove a 25-footer by Carol Vadney. With less than three minutes remaining, Perrant kicked away a low slap shot by Ken Hodge to the inside of the far post. The save ignited a breakaway by Clark on which Orr was called for a holding penalty. As Orr went to the penalty box, everybody knew the Bruins were finished. 
please, Padney, come to the train, keep it in, it's knocked out again. 16 seconds left. Barber, after a loose putt, 15 seconds left in the game. Joseph down the ice. Well, makes the save. Final score, Flyers won, Bruins nothing. Fans leaped over the boards and filled the ice surface. NHL President Clarence Campbell presented the Stanley Cup to the Flyers, but amidst the bedlam, they were able to take only a few feet of their triumphant skate. Euphoria gripped the Philadelphia area. Greenberg writes, on streets and in taverns, drunken renditions of God Bless America were performed endlessly. The next day, the Flyers rode in open convertibles for a parade to Independence Park. They were overwhelmed by a crowd estimated at two million. Fans reached into their cars to offer drinks, touch them, and tear at their clothes. The vehicles carrying Bobby Clark and Ed Van Imp were so inundated that neither made it to the ceremony. When the motorcade finally reached the historic park, Shiro spoke to the crowd. He told them, You've got the greatest team in hockey here, and you're going to win the cup again next year. Shiro's prophecy was dead on. The Bullies defended the Cup in 1975 and beat Buffalo in the finals. That season, Schultz set a record for penalty minutes with 472. The Flyers reached the finals again in 1976, only to be swept by the Montreal Canadiens. After the 76 season, Schultz was traded to Los Angeles. He played four more seasons with three teams and retired after the 1980 season. In 1982, Schultz wrote an open letter to his son in the New York Times. In it, he expressed guilt and regret about his role as an enforcer. Schultz wrote, My penalty record is nothing to be proud of, and the fighting I did is not something I would like you to emulate. As my professional hockey career began winding down, I began to examine it more closely. I wanted desperately to be a good, clean player, just as I had been in junior hockey. But it just wasn't to be. I was branded a goon, and there was no turning back. The Broad Street Bullies ushered in a new era of violence in the NHL. The 73-74 Flyers led the league with 62 major penalties, Twelve years later, the Detroit Red Wings led the league with 162 major penalties. The league averaged a fight every other game in 1973-74. Just 14 years later, the NHL averaged 1.3 fights per game. The 73-74 Flyers led the league in total penalty minutes with 1,742, in the early 90s, Buffalo set the all-time record with 
2713. In 1987, the NHL began to crack down on bench-clearing brawls. Fights and major penalties began to decline. New rules after the 2004-05 lockout were meant to increase speed in scoring and de-emphasize fighting. But fighting and enforcers remained part of the game. John Branch wrote in the New York Times in 2011, There is no athlete quite like the hockey enforcer, a man in a role viewed alternately as noble and barbaric, necessary and regrettable. Branch was writing about Derek Bugard, an enforcer who suffered brain damage from too many bare-knuckle fights. Bugard medicated himself with alcohol and opioids and died from an overdose at the age of 28. Somehow, Dave Schultz sidestepped Bugard's cruel fate. In 2009, he was the 20th inductee into the Flyers Hall of Fame. The Flyers honored Schultz with a ceremony at their new arena, the Wachovia Center. Frank Saravalli of the Philadelphia Daily News wrote, As the banner emblazoned with his name was being raised, a teary-eyed Schultz stood where he spent the bulk of his time in the penalty box. giving me all those penalties. Just meet me in the penalty box. The ice is freezing, so come in where it's warm. Closer, baby. Closer. I told you. I told you, I ain't all bad. Got some, a lot of good moves. Thanks for listening to that championship season. Our show was written and produced by me, Steve Morantz. Primary sources were two books, Full Spectrum and the Philadelphia Flyers at 50, both by Jay Greenberg. To find more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, championshipseasonpodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, which really helps people find it. You can also find the show at virtually anywhere else you find podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from that championship season. 